We didn't lie to you, folks. We told you we had living, breathing monstrosities. You laughed at them, shuddered at them, and yet, but for the accident of birth, you might be even as they are. They did not ask to be brought into the world, but into the world they came. Their code is a law unto themselves. Offend one, and you offend them all. podcast devoted to honoring and deconstructing the world of classic cinema. As always, I'm your host, Kristen Lopez. I'm Drea Clark. And I'm Samantha Ellis. And this week we are talking about 1932's Freaks as part of our Halloween offerings. If you want to learn more about upcoming events, bonus shows, hear interviews, head over to patreon.com slash ticklishbiz and help support the show. So we are, of course, talking about 1932's Freaks. This is a pre-code horror feature produced and directed by Todd Browning, who was legendarily known as the director of Dracula and Mark of the Vampire. Uh, This is a film starring a cavalcade of circus performers, including Harry and Daisy Earls, Daisy and Violet Hilton, and regular actors, including Wallace Ford, Lila Hyams, and Olga Baklanova. It tells the story of a circus sideshow, predominantly the lives of Hans and Frida, played by brother and sister duo Harry and Daisy Earls, which is why their romanticism is so tempered in this movie, understandably so. Hans is into the trapeze artist Cleopatra, played by Olga Baklanova. She has discovered that Hans has come into some money and decides that it would be worth it to marry him and kill him off. But the quote-unquote code of the freaks is that if you hurt one of them, you hurt all of them. And that stuff happens. Was this a first-time watch for anyone? Have we all seen this before today? I definitely have seen it before. I remember seeing it probably in high school and then also studying it in film classes. When I saw it in high school... It was when I was getting into horror and watching a lot. I think it was recommended to me by the video store clerks because I was consuming a lot and I had been super into 1960s horror for a while. So I was like, yes, the older, the better. Let's keep time traveling. The effect this had on me as a horror film in terms of suspense and fear was indelible watching it over and over through the years as both a cinephile and someone who's trying to constantly be challenging myself for perspective and just having a better sense of the world, a passionate view that it brought. It's been something that stayed with me for a while. This is one of the few classic films that my sister introduced me to. 
She is very much on the dark side of Hollywood and horror, all of the really interesting films with fascinating stories as far as she is really drawn to movies that are off the beaten path as far as production goes. And this is definitely one of those films. And you can just see from the first view that it's ahead of its time. And I think that really drew her to it. Her enthusiasm about this film drew me to it. So I've seen this movie a couple of times and I definitely value it. This is a film that I've watched very regularly and apparently I've become a quasi-expert on it. I don't necessarily know if that's strictly because it's a movie about disabled performers and I am a person with a disability. I don't know what came first, if I saw it and then I thought about it that way or vice versa. I know I saw it well before I started writing about stuff like that. So it had to be something that was just more of an interest as I've developed. But I've seen this several times. I thoroughly enjoy this. Not necessarily as a horror movie. I think it's a horror movie in the way that it is intended to prove how disability is often portrayed as this horrible thing that no able-bodied person wants to experience. In that realm, it's a horror film. But if you are a disabled person watching this, there's two very different schools of thought, which is that you appreciate it and you enjoy it for how things play out, or you're repulsed by how exploitative it is. And I never really understood the exploitative theme to it. It was a lot of studio heads exploiting this, look how shocking it is. But I don't think Browning films it that way. And maybe that's something we can talk about in a second. I pride this movie. I've called this one of the Still, in 1932, one of the most progressive looks at disability in cinema. And that says a lot, considering that we are now in 2019. It's still progressive. It's a film that I think, don't quote me on it 100%, but boasts one of the largest disabled cast played by disabled actors, which is something that we still can't seem to do in this day and age. And it tells a story about just how hard it is to be an outsider and how other people see you and the minutia of your day. It's like one of those memes, how able-bodied people think I spend my day, how I think I spend my day, and how I actually spend my day. So I value it as a landmark when it comes to disabled representation on camera. I would hope that Todd Browning would be proud of that because this movie destroyed his career. I agree. Touching on the exploited quality of it or the presumed exploitation. I remember when I first watched it, and I think even the professor that was talking to us about this, people were conflating exploitation of the idea of having disabled performers and that the mere fact of having them was taking advantage of them, specifically some of them who had I never remember the proper name for it, but the pinheads, the... In- the microcephalics. Microcephalics, yeah. thank you. That's the same idea of like working with small children or how cognizant are they for what they're doing. The difference in re-watching it is I never felt that those characters were used in a way to mock them inherently. Your reaction to them was much more telling of you than something they were putting out. I would have gotten a different sense of it and a different idea of how Todd Browning was approaching this as a director if he had 
dressed them or put them in situations that were mockable. There's something fascinating that the fundamental idea of this film and that the threat that goes over it of turning this able-bodied woman, the Cleopatra character, when the big horror comes out, it's the threatening to turn her into something that she doesn't want to be. For the rest of it, it's these performers who seem to be celebrating and living a life very much how they are. They're performers and they excel at it. And watching them do that, there's some great joy in those moments. There is a point to be made that the movie tries, without getting too deep into it, with the nature of who is exploiting who. And when you read about some of the performers that showed up in this movie, some of them definitely were exploited. It's unfortunate we didn't have my guest on here, Scott Michaels, who knows more than I do. But the performer Schlitzy, who plays one of the main microcephalic characters in the movie, actually, no one really knows what his birth date is, or even his real name. He was essentially born and then passed along immediately from birth to various carnivals through these informal guardianships. And that's how a lot of these performers were. If you read up about P.T. Barnum and Tom Thumb, he pretty much bought him. That was the sad truth of being a person with a disability in the early 1800s, 1900s, is that there was no purpose to you. So if you wanted to make some money, you worked in a circus. More often than not, you were sold into a circus and somebody else got that money. Watching it, you're always wondering if any of the performers actually got to take home the money that they made making this movie. But you do have a lot of performers that did make a living as circus performers who saw this as a call to fame. Harry Earls and Daisy Earls, who played Hans and Frida, were part of a well-known group of little people that traveled under the name The Doll Family. Daisy and Violet Hilton, who played Join Twins, were well-known in England and America and had a very successful act that made them quite a bit of money, predominantly for their mother, but they did have a very comfortable life for themselves, as well as Prince Randian, who was the human torso in this movie, so you had a lot of these well-known performers. If you were into the circus in the early 1930s, you probably knew of these people. While we're listing them, I'd just like to shout out Johnny Eck, the human torso, yes. because I think he's a righteous babe. And I love <laughs> that his carnival act outside of Freaks, he had a fraternal twin brother. I even looked these up. I want you to know, I tried to learn. It sounds like a medical professional, like I knew what I was talking about, but his fraternal twin brother didn't have the same condition he had that shrunk his legs, essentially. And they had this incredible act after Freaks with a magician. His brother would be a plant in the audience and would be like, I'll come up. And they did the sawing, sawing a body in half. And then Johnny... And then another little person inside a pair of pants would come out and Johnny would chase after the pants, like, give me back my legs, which I think is one of the best acts I've ever heard of. So shout out to Johnny. <laughs> and that's the thing is that a lot of these performers really thought that this was going to be their chance at fame and stardom. Didn't necessarily work out that way. Harry and Daisy Earls did go on to both appear in The Wizard of Oz before they quit acting. Daisy and Violet Hilton did make an attempt at a film career. They had several films that were in development, but the only one that they got off the ground was a film called Chain for Life, 
which I think is from 1952 or 53, and I've seen it. It is a terribly made movie on par with, no, I think Ed Wood actually made better movies, but it's a very fascinating film in terms of how they saw themselves versus what the studio saw. And that's the really unique thing about Freaks is that you can see where Todd Browning wanted to tell one story and the studio really wanted to tell another. It's a miracle that this movie comes out as coherently as it does. Looking at the legacy of the film and how the reactions to it have changed in digging more into these performers and how they were utilized, you referenced it's two siblings that played the main characters. Harry and Daisy Earl. Yes. Yeah. The character's name is Hans and her character... Frida. Thank you, Frida, of course. It's almost unfortunate to me that for whatever reasons of casting, they couldn't find non-related actors to play those only because it's such an emotional storyline and Frida's care and worry for Hans is one of the best heart twingy elements of this film. Seeing them have a romantic and even sexual connection would have been a nice elevation. That said, not to dismiss their performances because I think the two of them did a good job. There's something so unique. It's adding to the idea of what horror films are. And obviously, Todd Browning had been an actor, had directed Dracula, was familiar with classic horror. There's things in Freaks that are frightening on human levels well beyond the idea of threat or suspense. There's something about the idea of a man being taken advantage of by a woman that many men would fear. There's a lot of subtext at play in this story. And I'm wondering if you guys would think of it, what to you is the fundamental storyline of this? It's an ensemble and it's about Cleo and Hans, but do you think that they're the main couple? Do you think Hans and Frida are? Or is it part of the magic of how this film's coming across? It's largely a love triangle between Cleo, Hans, and Frida. You definitely see a huge part of the story, the way that it plays out, is Frida's anguish over the way that everything is transpiring. I love the intricacy of her character in that she still stays out of his life because she cares about him and wants the best for him until she realizes that she has to do something about what's happening to him. It's an interesting point about the fact that the Earls are related and that they play love interests. They make it work without having to be really sexually explicit or too explicit regarding their romance. Largely, this could actually be written as brother and sister. It wouldn't be as good of a love triangle, but I think it could still work. They definitely skirt by without too many romantic overtones. They were trying to play on the success of the siblings in real life, and trying to piggyback onto that. And on the note of Todd Browning, it really is a miracle that this film was made. It was so many different backgrounds coming together on one production. His own background in the circus, as well as the other people who were involved in writing. The reason why this was made was 
that there were a lot of people that were on his side financially because he had done so well at the box office with Dracula. And also he had the creative forces like Norma Shear and Irving Thalberg who wanted to see this movie made. Those two names alone, their opinions mattered back then more than any other time, as well as Todd Browning with the prestige that he had gotten from Dracula. So I think it's really interesting how all these creative forces were able to come together at this time and make such a fascinating production. The one reason I was saying that I would have liked for them to have been able to explore a more romantic side of it is not because I totally agree with you. I do think they pull it off really nicely and there's a good sense of care. It's more, it would have been nice to see their adult performers and the idea of seeing little people having sexual relationships and connections in a positive way and not in a way that was fetishizing or objectifying. Seeing that would have been a nice contrast to his relationship with Cleopatra, which is nothing but artifice. And getting into the Thalberg support of it is fascinating. Kristen always has more to imbue than me on the history front, but I do remember him being a low-key champion, even if he got separated from the project. To go back to Hans and Frida, it's important to point out that even today, you don't normally get two disabled performers presented in any type of romantic subtext or romantic plot with someone who is like them, let alone someone who is able-bodied and is played by a disabled performer. Don't get me wrong. Somebody's going to email me and be like, there have been plenty of movies where a disabled person is presented as a sex object. Yes, and they're usually men who are not disabled. So don't even get me started. So I do like that even though Harry and Daisy were brother and sister, that they are given a romantic plot line. And more importantly, that Hans is allowed to have this romantic plot with Cleopatra. He pursues her. He is interested in her. And he genuinely believes that she is interested in him, which is why when his breakdown he has about being a man and how he wants to be happy is just so upsetting because he really wished that somebody would see him beyond his disability. It's why Frida's line about, to me, you are a man, but to others, you're just something to laugh at is so poignant. But to go towards the history, this was a passion project for Browning specifically. Nobody else wanted him to make this, including Irving Thalberg. (laughs) He wanted to buy the rights to this starting in the early 20s. It's based on a short story called Spurs. Thalberg, after the success of Dracula, told Browning that he could make anything he wanted within reason. He wanted him to make Arson and Lupin with John Barrymore. And Browning said, no, he didn't want to do it. He wanted to make this project. He had read the original story. He'd started writing the script in 27 and he wanted to make it. Everybody that was involved in this project for the most part was at his request. He got the screenwriters, Willis Goldbeck and Elliot Clausen. They were assigned because he wanted them to be a part of it. Charles MacArthur did a polish on the script. They did not use much of the original story beyond the fact that there was a marriage between Hans and Cleopatra and the wedding feast. The only thing Browning couldn't get was the actors that he wanted. 
he had three main actors that he really wanted for the able-bodied roles. He wanted Victor McLaughlin to play Hercules. That's the strong man who is involved with Cleopatra. He wanted Myrna Loy to play Cleopatra. And he wanted Jean Harlow to play the kind, able-bodied woman Venus, the role that went to Lila Hyams. Thalberg said no, because he did not want his A-list stars tainted by a movie that he knew was going to be sold as an exploitative horror film. Honestly, knowing now and, and having seen so many of those films that those actors already did, it's for the best because if you had A-list stars, you overshadow the real stars of this movie, which I think is the circus performers. I don't think you need Myrna Loy and Jean Harlow. If anything, the actors work better because they're not known stars. You know, Olga Baklanova did not have a really great career after this. She did work steadily, but she was always lampooned as this siren. But I think she really works here um, as this infantilizing ableist woman. And especially Lila Hyams as the able-bodied ally Venus. If you had Jean Harlow, she would have been great, but we all would have said that this role was far beneath her talents. I'm happy that there are not big names in this movie. This is one of the only times I'll say that. Not only would this have detracted from Harlow's talent and Harlow's filmography specifically, it also proves to be a real jewel in the crown of Layla Hyams. She does some really excellent work here and just that uniqueness where other films in her filmography were kind of lacking. Throw freaks in there and this becomes a really well-rounded filmography. Although I will say, as far as the timing goes, I think it would have been really fascinating to see Myrna Loy tackle this part because I, she could have. Whether she should have is a different story, but I definitely think she could have. I do like that there are allies in this movie. It's important because ordinarily when I'm watching a movie today about disabled people, it's always through the able-bodied person's eyes. It's what I call the able-bodied buffer. And here you have this ensemble where the camera is always respectful of how everybody is in this community. Venus is this nice girl, but she has her own problems. She's been screwed over by Hercules, who's thrown her on her rear. She's just a genuinely nice person. She doesn't go out of her way to be the saintly figure to the circus performers. She's just one of them. Although that does not stop her from using the word freak in a pejorative at one point when she goes up to Hercules and says, oh, how low are you guys that you would take a freak for his money? Like, it's still ingrained in her to see them in that way, or at least to be casual in the use of the language. But for the most part, she's a good person. And same with the other guy who plays the clown, who has also got the little relationship, Frozo, played by Wallace Ford. He's also just a nice person. So it goes back to, and I hate to use the phrase because it's so generic now, but you have good able-bodied allies and you have bad able-bodied people. It's not one size fits all thing. That's just how people are in this community. And I like that. I like that there is this egalitarianism to how people are written. A lot of that has to do with Todd Browning himself. He grew up in a circus family. He lived with circus performers every day and he saw how they were treated and he wanted to tell a story that was understanding of that. And 
sympathized with that. And the camera is always sympathetic. Even at the end of the movie, it would have been very easy for the camera to end on Frozo and Venus going out into the sunset arm in arm, the able-bodied people in love and happy, but the camera doesn't. The camera stays on Hans and Frida in their embrace. And that's what's the important takeaway, that the disabled performers have found love and that they have survived and that they've gone on. That is so, I don't like to use the word because it's just thrown out so often, but that's revolutionary. It's still revolutionary. Oh, it's definitely revolutionary. And I would add that in addition to having the able-bodied ally and the good and bad, I actually appreciated that by the end, there's also within the disabled performers, people who are more vindictive than others. Hans is, at the end, feeling regret and needs to be comforted by Frida for the results of everything, how everything went down. I liked that, the idea that they're not a monolith, that the people within their community, of course, are going to react in different ways to the threat of this woman and her mockery and her taking advantage of one of them. That's also important. There's a dangerousness of brushing an entire community with the same stroke and the assumption that they all would be reacting the same way. So I was grateful for the idea. They had different investments in how to handle her. How's that for talking around a spoiler of a hundred year old film? <laughs> it really is shocking, the ending. That's something that even if you haven't heard of this movie, a lot of people know the ending. Something that's stood out as so daring to me, in addition to everything else that you could consider revolutionary about this film, was the fact that you have these three able-bodied allies that you mentioned. But really, they're largely the exception to the rule of the human character in this film. You have those three kind souls, and then you have so many other able-bodied characters that say the most disgusting things. And they're really the ones that are treated as the bad guys. That's something that is worth pointing out. Because you have these scenes, and there's even a lot of dialogue that you will find online that was cut out about the freaks, quote-unquote, and how good and how kind and how pure-souled they are. And then you have even more disparaging remarks from the able-bodied characters. So I think that's something that was so brave of Todd Browning to do that there are bad, able-bodied people just as much as there's good, disabled people. There's a lot of this movie that unfortunately is just lost to time that was cut out, and much of it was the desire to humanize the performers more than anything else. So that scene by the river with the microcephalics, where the nurse character says that they're like children. Yes, I understand that's infantilizing. I get that. But at the same time, the impetus of that scene is not on her explaining why they should be outside. You're supposed to be horrified about the guy that thinks that they shouldn't be outside. You also have extended scenes of just the performers in their day-to-day lives. The bearded lady has a baby everybody comes to see it or you have the scene with the Hilton sisters no not those ones different ones Daisy and Violet forever 
one of them is engaged to be married. Another one is in some type of relationship with a guy that's really into her. Both of these guys are able-bodied. And there's that bit of saucy allure from the fact that the one sister can feel the other sister being kissed. And it just leads you to think of a lot of other stuff. I love those elements because the ones that survived the movie just really show, I don't even want to say the possibilities. It shows just how mundane their lives are. They just live like everybody. And I wish that there was more of that because in 1932, when people with disabilities were straight thing was to just throw them in an institution or or send them to a carnival, I would have done a lot to change perspectives on just like, hey, these people are really not that special and that they're just like us. They have children, they fall in love. I love Frances O'Connor, who is the armless woman who just does all of her everyday stuff with her feet. I love those little things. And the fact that so much of that was cut out because it was deemed irrelevant by able-bodied studio heads. Thanks, Louis B. Will always break my heart. It would have been so much nicer to see all of them in their natural environments of how they are working and getting through their day because it's a unique insight into things that most people don't get to see. She especially was so graceful. I remember her eating or drinking something. She's drinking and her foot is so elegant as it picks up the cup. It's so tragic if you really stop and think about all of the amazing scenes and dialogue that we have missed in this movie. And it's so sad that Todd Browning and this whole production lost as many battles as it won. As we've mentioned, it's such a revolutionary film. But at the same time, while it's showing so many of the realities and so many really amazing moments of these disabled people, these same actors who are giving these amazing performances had to eat outside in a tent because other people were offended by having to look at them by their presence in the studio commissaries. There was definitely a long way to go, and there still is. It will always be a big question, what stars of MGM's canon in the 1930s complained and were offended by the cast members from this movie? I don't want to point any fingers, Norma. I'm guessing it was probably Norma who complained. Just a reminder that all your favorite classic film stars might not have wanted to eat with these people in the commissary. That's on them. You're totally right, Sam. It says more about the studio system in general, Hollywood in general. It goes well beyond just this movie. It goes towards things that we're still talking about today regarding disability and representation. Makes you wonder how far we've really come, if at all. I may be just trying to defend somebody who doesn't deserve it. I did hear that Norma wanted to meet Schultze and that Schultze was a fan of hers. I don't know how far that goes. And I heard that largely the people who were offended by the characters and everybody in the commissary was the studio heads themselves. Makes sense. Which... Literally, literally, I would die to have a list of names of people who complained as well. I would be very, very curious. I do love that either the opportunity to 
denounce Myrna or lift her up again is one that we will pounce on. And I'm glad for that for us. On that note, I also heard that Myrna turned down the role of Cleopatra because she found the script offensive, which major props to her for that one. She definitely was an activist in her day. Well, and especially the Cleopatra role. The film itself, the level of offense is probably at the script level would have seemed much more worrisome, not knowing how Todd, we're on a first name basis, how Todd Browning would handle things with the sympathetic and compassionate eye that he had. If I read a script of this, I would probably opt her way, particularly if I was reading to be Cleopatra, who's a monster. One other thing to touch on, and this is probably hammering some of the other details, but just a small side out of it, the disabled performers in this, something that always stood out to me and also that I appreciated because a lot of ensemble films don't necessarily gel with the genuine sense of community. In Freaks, it's set up that I very believably was invested in the idea that these people lived and worked together. They knew each other well, that it was a positive and affirming community to them. One of the best examples of that is that scene that's become really famous, and I definitely quote myself the one of us, one of us scene, when they decide to open their doors and hearts to Cleopatra. They have this long dinner set up, and they're going to bring her into the fold, and they're cheering her on. And there's something really beautiful at the beginning of that, that idea of this community of outsiders who will embrace someone else who wants to be a part of it, and that it's weaponized so quickly. I thought that was such a shrewd decision as a storyteller, because that's when Hercules says something taunting her, oh, they want to turn you into one of them, and taking this idea of the embrace of a person into a group of friends, into a community and a self-made family, turning it into a threat. That's what I'm talking about, that this film, that the levels of horror that it's operating on, it changes the tone of that scene so quickly. That's a scary idea, that it's a vulnerable place to be in anyway, to open your hearts and to have someone twist it that way. It's fear operating on a lot of levels, which is why this film, for all of its great drama, is such a horror film. Well, that leads perfectly to talking about that wedding scene, which is probably the most well-known part of the movie. So Hans and Cleopatra get married and they're going to have this big party. Testament to the camera operator because it really does show this moment of rejoicing between these characters. If you were an able-bodied person in 1932, you were watching the character of like Coco dancing on the table you were laughing at that. That was something to laugh at. Watching it now and watching how Merritt Gerstad, who is the uncredited cinematographer in this movie, films everything, you can see that Browning just wants you to see this as this moment of jubilation between these characters. It culminates with Cleopatra getting progressively drunker. Finally, when somebody says a loving cup and they're going to make this toast and they do the infamous we accept her one of us scene that i've seen so many able-bodied people recreate in movies looking at you scorsese it's very telling 
it culminates with one of the characters drinking from the loving cup and then giving it to Cleopatra. And she starts screaming at them about how they're dirty, filthy freaks. Air totally gets sucked out of the room. What I noticed about the scene watching it this time is the gaslighting that happens immediately afterwards in the, their, what is it, their little wagon dorms or whatever, their little wagon rooms that they have, where Hercules is telling Hans, I don't understand it. How can you think that me and Cleo, that there's something going on? And just hearing the able-bodied people tell him, we don't see you as disabled. We don't see that. We have no problem. It was just everything else. That's a very real thing. If you're a disabled person, you've had those conversations with people where they're just like, I don't know what the problem is. I don't have a problem with you. Other people have a problem with you. That's very, very relatable. But at the same time, if you didn't think Cleopatra was bad before that, if you didn't notice the little things that she does, the way she pinches Hans's cheeks or calls him cute or calls him baby, it's not like a cute term of endearment. It's because she sees him as a kid. But if you didn't notice that, when she finally says the name of the movie, that you notice how terrible of a human being she is. And I don't see freaks as being a word ascribed to them. Browning uses it as the word that able-bodied people who don't like people different from them have given to them. It's like the ultimate insult. When people say, oh, how can you support this movie? It's a movie called Freaks. I don't think the word is being used to denote them. I think is being used as this horrible slur that able-bodied people have just been throwing out. You always have to put the honest on the able-bodied people in this movie, which I find to be a very subtle thing. I don't know if Browning even intended that, but that's how it reads. And I would also add that Freaks, by the end of this, was, if you're looking inward, the true horrors, the humans that are exhibiting the least amount of humanity and therefore freakish in their behavior, are able-bodied. Our Cleopatra, our Hercules, are the ones who are taking advantage of them. And like you mentioned, with even this sympathetic character, the Venus character, using that as a reference, like it's a catch-all. And I very much was like, Ugh, maybe at the time that was just like, oh, that's what we call the performers. But by the end of it, I liked that separation of if I'm going to analyze who's acting freakishly, it's the people who are trying to ruin other people's lives for their own betterment. Who knows, that could be the interesting level of a film like this lasting so long. Although it's sad that not all of it lasted. There's like 30 some minutes gone forever. It lasting and going through this shifting cultural mores and the different viewpoints and perspectives you're getting that's where I'm landing in 2019 of thinking, who's considered a freak to me? Well, that leads to the end of the movie, which is the moment that the various circus performers realize that Hans is being poisoned and Cleopatra is responsible. I like the nurse character, the able-bodied matron, is also notices something wrong. So it's not just the circus performers. There's that unfortunate air of able-bodied legitimacy that needs to come through but they discover it it comes during the middle of this dark rainy night they decide that the code of the freaks quote-unquote to punish her for trying to hurt one of them that's a very evocatively shot scene watching the characters crawl through the mud i wish they didn't have to but hollywood marketing you see them all come out 
in the various ways that they've adapted to moving. So Prince Randian's crawling through the mud with this knife in his teeth, which I understand it might seem scummy and exploitative, but I love that shot. Because it's just like, you know what, if you got to knife somebody, you got to work with whatever you have. So I applaud him for being able to do that. We don't know what happens to Cleopatra right off the bat. And we'll never know because all of that footage is missing because it was deemed too violent. It ends with Cleopatra seeming to have been fused with a chicken in some way. The prologue that was added in at the beginning and the end the carnival barker say this is what happened to this poor woman and the movie ends with hans and frida reunited i understand why they cut out the violence because as sam has pointed out in a couple other episodes they would not have included such overt violence like that in this movie and i get that and i also think it makes you feel a bit more for the performers if you would watch them viciously hack up this woman and fuse her with a chicken which i don't know how any of that was logically possible you would not have felt for them as much as just having your imagination figure things out the another unfortunate thing is that what they did to hercules the original cut of the movie they castrated him and the original ending was supposed to show not just the cleopatra chicken but hercules singing in a falsetto and that footage is all gone they had to go back and do reshoots which is why the final scene with hans and frida looks so washed out because they filmed it later I do enjoy the way that it ends regardless because you do get that concept of be careful what you wish for. They are now officially what they despised. You watch the happy couple, which is Hans and Frida, go off into the sunset together. I would love to see the footage, but I don't necessarily think it ruins the movie without it. It's funny that you mention that I've mentioned that they couldn't have done it back then because... It's tragic that it's not in there. This is honestly one of those big question marks in Hollywood history as far as footage that has been lost that I would really like to see again. It couldn't have been done better, but reading the script notes and reading the parts that they've cut out, it's just fascinating. Since they've already pushed the envelope to the extent that they have, it would have been really interesting to see what they could have done if there were no holds barred whatsoever. There's so much to this ending. Just the shot of her was so shocking for the time. As much as I am so for the fact that disabled actors get a Hollywood ending in this, I just can't imagine from a horror standpoint how interesting it would have been to just show the chicken and then end it. I wish that those lost scenes were in this because as much as on paper I hear about Hercules being castrated and don't like it and there's a sentence I don't get to say nearly enough, I also have enough faith in how Todd Browning handled a lot of other things to wonder if there would be some nuance to that as well. Some nuance to a castrated man singing falsetto. The shot of her in the box, which is such a nice bookend for the beginning, because one of the first things we see is someone arriving to the circus and opening the box and looking in it, and we don't see what it is. So it's a nice resolution to that at the end of the movie to have that action fulfilled. But the takeaway from it, from all of it, is the positive sides of it and the love story 
I would not want to end on the box myself. This movie was filmed in just two months in 1931, and they did a test screening in January of 32, and it was considered an unmitigated disaster to the point that one woman threatened to sue the studio because she believed that the film had caused her to suffer a miscarriage. Yes, this is the America of 1932. So the studio decided to just hack it to pieces to just barely an hour. It had its premiere in February of 1932. The reviews were scathing. People despised this movie regardless. It lost almost $165,000. It was a huge source of controversy. Browning, who was considered really hot stuff, couldn't get work and pretty much ended his career. He made four movies after this, but only was credited for two. He did do Mark of the Vampire after this. He was credited for that, and he was uncredited on The Devil Doll. And it was actually banned in the UK for 30 years. So it remains this weird little piece of disabled history that, again, if you talk to disabled people, there's very mixed reaction about this film. It does not have a consensus and terms of being a landmark or just this scummy piece of trash. I haven't been able to prove whether the woman suing was an apocryphal tale or not, if it was true, but that would have been great for the studio to be like, the movie's so shocking, causes women to lose their pregnancies. Like, William Castle wishes he came up with that. Right, right, and that backfired for them. It did not work in the way that they wanted it to. That's more towards the marketing of the movie. They expected a certain type of movie and they didn't get it. It ended up ruining Todd Browning's career forever and it's such a shame. R.I.P. to what could have been a very different career to Todd Browning. Yes, yes. But hooray that we are still watching even a truncated version and talking about this film now. As far as Todd Browning's career goes, I'm personally shocked that there was no desire to ever coax him back into Hollywood. The way that horror in Hollywood went after his demise is just so reminiscent of his work. I just would have loved to see what his career would have been like if he had come back in the mid-50s with the Hammer horror films or the 60s with the... Vincent Price Poe films. It really is a shame, but I think especially through that lens, he had such potential. There was actually an obituary released for Browning in 1944 or so, because Browning, once he quote-unquote retired from the studios, he just went into seclusion. He didn't come out. A lot of that was sadness and shame at how his career had ended, but he had to come forward and say he wasn't dead He had to do the Monty Python, I'm not quite dead yet. He ended up dying in the early 60s at the age of 82 or something. It's always going to bother me that nobody really wanted to take a chance on him just because he made this movie. That leads us to overall thoughts about Freaks. I love it. I've pretty much said everything I wanted to say about it. It's a landmark piece of disabled representation. We haven't really gotten much better than it. We make less exploitative films, but this movie still holds the biggest cast of disabled performers in 1932. We can barely get one in a movie in 2019 because it's just easier to get Eddie Redmayne to play them all, apparently. Sam, Drea, what are your overall thoughts 
on freaks. Subtle burn on Eddie Redmayne. I always got burns for Eddie Redmayne. <laughs> People should see this. If you're a film fan of any nature, if you are a classic film fan, if you're a horror film fan, there's a lot here to take in. It is a very quick view. There's just so much layered into this storytelling and visually. And there's a compassion to this that a lot of filmmakers are able to convey story, but not a tone or sensibility, or the other way around. And he blends the two of them very nicely. This movie deserves a much, much bigger platform than it has. It brings in so many things that I love about cinema. It's got the horror aspect. It's got the really, really well-developed and great romantic aspect. It's made during my favorite era in cinema, and that shows so much of its good side. I think it was made at a really great time. I would love to see this movie get more attention. I know that this movie was one of the midnight screenings for a TCM film festival one year, and I'm just so jealous. I can't imagine what it would have been like to see this on the big screen. I'm just crossing my fingers and hoping and praying that those 30 minutes that are lost are going to be found someday. Just to see them. Every single performance in this is wonderful. It's just so ahead of its time. Listeners, let us know your thoughts on Freaks. You can email your thoughts to us at ticklishbiz at gmail.com and we'll read them on the next episode. I'd like to thank my co-hosts, Samantha Ellis and Dre Clark, for joining me once again. Sam, where can fans find and get in touch with you? What's going on with your work? Well, you can find me online at musingsofaclassicfilmatic.com. You can find my Cooking with the Stars posts every month on classicmoviehub.com. And I'm on Twitter at Classic Film. And Drea Clark, what about you? I'm on Twitter at the Drea Clark and my contemporary film podcast, not like contemporary dance. Although I am available to do one of those if anyone is interested. Who shot ya? is the name of that one. And you can find me on Twitter at journeys underscore film. I also have my website, which you can check out classic films that I review regularly at journeysandclassicfilm.com. And if you want to support the podcast and buy some of the movies that we've talked about here, head over to our Amazon shop. That's amazon.com slash shop slash journeys underscore film. That's going to close out this edition of Ticklish Business. If you're listening to us through any of the podcast apps out there leave us a rating and a review help get the word out and you can find us on twitter at ticklish underscore biz if you want to learn about upcoming episodes hear exclusive content that no one else has access to right away or get pins consider supporting ticklish business via patreon with just a dollar you can get one of our snazzy ticklish biz pins five dollars gets you access to two bonus podcasts that I do with William Bibiani and Adam Kautzer, as well as a huge number of exclusive interviews. I have a bunch coming up in the next couple of months that are going to be really great. That's patreon.com slash ticklish biz. We're going from Halloween into Noir-vember. We're going to be doing our top three thirsty noirs, the noirs that get us hot and bothered. Bye. Thank <laughs> you.